Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Through the Crypto. Today, we are talking DeFi flash loan attack. We also have Coinbase getting Visa on board. And then finally, in the main topic, we're talking the money hackers, how a group of misfits took on Wall Street and changed finance forever. That's right. It's an exciting new book from Daniel P. Simon, and he's on the show. Through the Crypto, starting now. gentlemen welcome back to another exciting episode of through the crypto my name is car car gonzalez today is february 23rd 2020 and we are talking that's right DeFi at the top of the show so earlier this week there was a decentralized lending protocol called bzx was exploited in a back-to-back flash loan attack while the two exploits were distinct and the end results remained the same, it totaled in $954,000 right from the platform. But what exactly happened? Well, Coindesk actually broke the news when it happened. It was during ETH Denver last week. I think we covered it during the Thriller News. But for some reason, people think it has to do with DeFi and this whole new decentralized finance sector that's kind of growing in the ethereum space well not not so much it, it's actually executed pretty brilliantly <laughs> i wouldn't call it a hack it was more like an exploit it was very done it was done very well and it was all done with within a minute it started on february 14th that's right valentine's day and uh, in order to pull off the heist the attacker had to do everything within a minute that's right one minute for close to a million dollars That's some good work there, (laughs) but I'll let Coindesk explain all of it. Attackers made off with nearly a million dollars this week using an ingenious exploit. How did they do it? Let's walk through the steps. First, in the world of decentralized finance, there are things called flash loans. These are literally instant loans that you can get without collateral. Say I needed $5 to buy something worth, to me, $10, but it was still selling for $5. Let's say I didn't have any cash. I can use decentralized finance to take out a flash loan buy the item instantly, send back the original loan amount, and enjoy my $10 item. It's pretty crazy, but that's one of the cool features of decentralized finance. So here's what happened with the project called BZX. An attacker took out a flash loan in Ether to buy a stablecoin that should be worth $1 each. The attacker knew that the flash loan suppliers were only using one pricing source to set the price of their tokens. The pricing source, an exchange, had been saying that the stablecoin was worth $1 for a long time. That's the point of a stablecoin. Next, the exchange pushed the price of the stablecoin up to $2. The flash loan supplier saw this and thought when the attacker paid back their loan that they only owed half the original amount. The result? Profit. All of this took less than a minute, so no one noticed, and none of the tripwires set up for this were triggered. It's like doubling your money from a bank. The interesting thing? This wasn't a hack. Everything worked as advertised, and this is exactly how decentralized finance projects are supposed to work. That said, they'll be fixing these flash loan systems to prevent this kind of attack in the future, and the result is a more secure financial network for a pretty big price. Yeah, shout out to Coindesk for uh, really giving us great coverage around all the whole exploit and the the attack. Uh, they did a fantastic job. Also, Laura Shin 
created some really good podcasts last week um, with some, um, I guess, I guess you would call them DeFi experts, and they were able to explain the exploit a little bit more clearly. So if you guys want to go really in depth on it, uh, definitely check out Laura Shin's podcast and then check out Coindesk. They actually did a great job this week. Pretty awesome. Okay, next up we have Peter Thiel. That's right. Peter Thiel has a, I don't know what you would call it, I guess a venture fund called Layer One, and they began mining Bitcoin in West Texas. That's right. So the Bitcoin mining startup Layer One has started mining in its West Texas site. The site expects to scale to 200 million to megawatts. Yeah. <laughs> Within a few months and aims to capture 30% of total network hash rate by the end of 2021. Dang, sounds like they want to compete with uh, China. Layer One raised 50 million from uh, Peter Thiel, Shasta Ventures and others in November. And it's a it's a San Francisco based firm, but has kind of uh, looked at uh, several mining containers to kind of get a good idea of how liquid cooling technology and high temperatures in Texas can kind of, you know, scale at, at that point. But what's interesting is that we also have Bitmain here in Texas. And if you don't know, this podcast is is, uh, is recorded in Austin, Texas. So Bitmain is over here in Rockdale, Texas. And then they're over here in West Texas. I will say West Texas is a beautiful place to drive through. <laughs> it's it's very nice at night. You see some purple skies. It's amazing. Um, man, it would be great to go on site and, and check that out. But um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe 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 if you're listening out there, Layer One, invite uh, old car to go check out the uh, check out the new mining facility. That'd be cool. Uh, okay, next up we have Coinbase receiving Visa Principal membership to offer more features for its debit card. That's right. Coinbase has now become a Visa Principal member, a move that will allow the crypto exchange to offer more features for its debit card. It was announced on Wednesday that it is this is the first pure play cryptocurrency company to receive Visa membership. But it's only in Europe. And that's right. And it supports 10 coins, including all the ones that you currently see right now. That's uh, Bitcoin, Ether, XRP, DAI, XLM, the whole gamut, right? This membership, they say, will enable us to offer more features for Coinbase card customers from additional services to support in more markets, all elements that will help to evolve and enrich the cryptocurrency payment experience. And then finally, our last piece of news, we have the U.S. Marshal Service auctions off 4,000 Bitcoin to two winning bidders. That's right. They, they auction. If you don't know this, the government likes to capture Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> and then they like to go out and sell it. Uh, you would think they would hodl, but no, they don't want to hodl. They want to sell it. So the, the U.S. Marshals uh, recovered 4,000 Bitcoins worth approximately 30, $39 million at press time. And then they went ahead and sold it off in different chunks. 2,500 Bitcoin chunk, 1,000 Bitcoin chunk, and 500 Bitcoin chunk. So yeah, whoever received those got some really clean uh, wash by hand Bitcoin <laughs> coming straight from the government. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, back in the early days, you know, people used to used to mine Bitcoin. People wanted the, they were called virgin coins because they came straight from the miners. And then it wasn't until I guess the, the Fed started getting involved where you had these kind of coins that were seized and you know they were. Um, how would you say dirty, <laughs> dirty bitcoins? And uh, once the government took over them, 
went to their wallets. They kind of got washed. Uh, well, there's really no washing there, right? It's all just come from a different address. At that point, you can say they're legitimate coins. Yeah, that's it. That's how uh, Tim Draper got most of his bitcoins. And then you kind of see it this these days, but it's kind of different because so when people think of like, where can I get some legitimate coins? You know, they want to go to the highly regulated <laughs> exchanges. So they'll go to Coinbase, they'll go to Gemini, and then you get what you call legitimate, you know, Bitcoins. This is why I'm totally against people using Bitcoin mixers because it really only benefits the people that are doing shady shit. <laughs> okay, we got off way off topic there, car. Let's get back into it with interesting video of the day. Thriller podcast. Interesting crypto video of the day. everybody but uh bitcoin went over 10k and most notably it surprised cnbc for whatever reason <laughs> whenever bitcoin gets over 10k uh mainstream media covers it which is great it's great for all of us and this week they had on morgan creep capital's lead investor mark yusko to uh, talk about bitcoin take a listen the crypto dropping sharply in the last few minutes but it is let's make not make too much of it it's still up more than 30 percent this year and right around that 10,000 level, your next guest says Bitcoin could maybe double or even triple so far this year. Let's bring in Mark Yusko of Morgan Creek Capital Management. He joins us from Raleigh, North Carolina, the RDU. Mark, it's good to have you on the program. Thanks very much. Well, um, thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, yeah, listen, today it fell a little bit, but the reality is Bitcoin has been red hot. I mean, it, absolutely red hot, along with, by the way, a lot of the other cryptos. What makes you so optimistic? Because I think Tim called in video a widow maker before that Bitcoin is able to continue to move higher in an extremely volatile market. Yeah, look, I, I think the best thing about the Bitcoin market today is, is the fundamentals. The fundamentals continue to increase and improve. Adoption is growing. The number of wallets is up. The number of transactions is up. All the, trans, uh, all the fundamentals really continue to get stronger. And we've also got the halving event that's coming up in May. And one of the things that does is that uh, compresses supply. There won't be as many rewards every 10 minutes, every block. And so that'll put some uh, inc or decrease pressure on the sales from the miners and prices usually adjust around those events. So we see a lot of upward momentum through the mid half of this year and, and into the second half, you'll probably get to see a lot of the, the chasing uh, that we saw back in 17, just like we're seeing the chasing in the stock market today. Any idea why it's down 5% right now? I, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you what happens minute by minute or even day to day. I just look at it over long periods of time. Like the last time I was on with, uh, with the traders here, you know, it was 8,000 and they said, what should I do? I said, buy it. And then a year ago I was on with Melissa and it was around, you know, 3,200, 3,300. And she said, oh, isn't it going to continue to go down? I said, no, you should buy it. So if it's down 5% today, you should buy it now, buy it tomorrow, buy it every day, stack your sats build that uh, portfolio, and then deposit some at, at one of our portfolio companies, I think was on with you guys a while ago, BlockFi, and get paid 8% interest on that uh, Bitcoin. It's a good thing. Mark, real quick, it's Guy, and thanks for coming on. Do, do yeah. rates going lower ac across the globe, is that a bullish for Bitcoin or crypto in general? Is there any correlation whatsoever in your studies? Oh, massively bullish. And look, Guy, I quoted you, I'm going to keep quoting you about... Uh, in the world of rogue central bankers, Bitcoin is king. 
Look, interest rates around the world are all going to zero, all of them. U.S. rates are going to zero. Chinese rates are going to zero. They're all going to zero. And it's all because of demographics and deflation and too much debt. And in a world where your only choice, right, you can't pay back the debt, you can't default on the debt, so you got to inflate it away by devaluing your currency, the central bankers are going to print. That is massively bullish for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is your opportunity to opt out of the fiat fiasco that's going on right now. And Guy, you, you coined the term, and I'm going to keep talking about it. Mark, it's Karen. Let me ask something. So clearly that's good, this you know, fiat currency crisis, if we have one. But yeah. is that the main underpinning of Bitcoin more than digital currency at this point? Oh, really great question, Karen. You think about Bitcoin itself. Today, it's really a store of value. It's, it's not designed to be a, uh, an exchange-traded token like uh, a Visa or MasterCard substitute. That's the Lightning Network. Companies like Zap, a new investment we just made, that's going to take care of that second-order uh, payments level for speed. Bitcoin is designed around security, most secure computer network in the world, most powerful computer network in the world. It is a perfect store of value. And if you follow the stock-to-flow model, you'll see that as the flow gets cut in half, again, here on the halving, that stock-to-flow ratio improves better than gold, and it becomes the digital form of gold, that pure store of value, and is really designed to be that that safe haven that we all use as part of a diversified portfolio. Outside of that, Mark, we got to let you, but I, I want to read a tweet, and I want you to respond to it. This tweet is by a guy named Mark W. Yusko, okay? And I'm going to use a <laughs> semi-bad word. I tell my five-year-old, don't use this word, the S word. It's not the, that one. All the raging equity bulls do realize that long bonds, the TLT, have outperformed stocks, the S&P 500, since valuations got to stupid, vile levels in January 2018, right? So, A, you think that stock markets must be dumb right now, and B, are you still bullish on bonds? Oh, yeah. So, two answers. Yes, I think uh, stocks are still in stupidville. I, I had a, miss, a typo there, although stupid oh, vile works, too. Okay, well, stupid vile. <laughs> it was supposed was to be vile, but fine. vile works, too, Brian. And they're so vile, just like in 2000, I think the future is going to be pretty, uh, pretty ugly for stocks. And bonds, because we think rates are going to con continue to go lower, TLT is another great hedge, along with something like DWSH to get fully hedged. If you had a portfolio of Bitcoin, TLT, DWSH, and a little bit of emerging market stocks like China A shares, you're gonna be all good. Okay, Mark W. Yusko. Mark, it's a real pleasure. Mark Creek Capital from Raleigh, RDU. Thank you very much, Mark. We appreciate that. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, it's always great to hear from Mark. Um, sure, Pomp wish he could be there. Uh, then we also had Mike Novogratz show up this week as well, too, on uh, CNBC Market Watch. Um, just a lot of good coverage on Bitcoin this week through the mainstream media. Yeah, so that's um, CNBC coverage. I mean, they usually just cover it when it's over 10K. It's not a bad thing. It's just uh, Bitcoin has struggled to solidify 10K, I guess you could say forever. <laughs> but this year might be the year we finally solidify 10K. And when we do, there'll be no turning back. We're going to talk all about that and more. That's right, in Coin Talk. Let's do it.
ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Coin Talk. But before we dive into that, got a couple wishes or uh, I guess you say recaps. First off, I want to say it's been wonderful, absolutely wonderful covering the news for y'all these past, what, four years, three years, three and a half years, whatever it's been. Thank you so much for all the kind words I get via email. Uh, we did have somebody this week email me uh, asking like what they can do if they want to show their support. You know, I never really asked this of y'all because we don't have ads in, in this show. I, I think it's I think ads and podcasts are, are, are lame as hell. <laughs> that's personally, that's what I feel. Um, so we never we never had ads in the show. I think we had we tried some we tried doing it in the early days, but it just sounded awful. So we took them out. We said, that's enough. No more ever again. And we kind of stuck by that. Like, feel like we stuck by that. But yeah, so if you want to support the show, the best way, like and the cheap way, the free way to do it is head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and tell us why you like the show. Like, that's the best way, honestly. If you if you don't have any money and you listen to the show every week and you're like, man, car's out there. He's hustling. He works his eight to five. He goes to these conferences. He pays his own way to get to these conferences. He covers them. He does interviews. He does all this stuff. And uh, the least I can do is give him a five-star review on iTunes because he doesn't accept ads and he won't take my Bitcoin. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you want to do that, if you want to show your support for the show, head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, tell us why you like it. And and uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Now, if you're one of those people that has money, <laughs> that wants to show support and doesn't mind listening to more of me, then I would recommend you check out, yeah, thrillercrypto.substack.com. That's our premium I guess, podcast that we have. Uh, we actually record shows there every week. And we've done so the past, gosh, it's almost been a full year already, where we have the subscription podcast at $7 a month. And you listen to as many shows as we have every week. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three. Uh, I always try to make sure to give out at least two. During slow times, it'll be like one a week or something. But I'm always trying to get as much content and insights up there. And we have three shows on there. Three different Thriller Crypto shows on there, different from the from these that you hear. So we have Thriller Coin Talk. That's right. It's an OD, but you guys love it. And then we also have Thriller Insights. It dies into the whole market, dies into the whole space. We even go really in-depth in some coin analysis. And then we also have Thriller Rundown, which is kind of like your what's going on in the space, what do I need to know before it happens kind of show. And then we have Thriller Insider, which is our deep dives into different types of uh, big moving pieces that are happening. Uh, this week, we're actually doing a Thriller Insider on the Golden Bull Run. That's right. And it, we talk about what this current bull run looks like and where it's headed. And we have charts and we have the whole thing. It's all in a newsletter, pre-packaged. It actually can even be done over podcast because it's a it's an audio podcast as well. So it's a newsletter and podcast in one. And it's uh, $7 a month. Most people, when they sign up, um, they usually stick around. And I, I tell everybody, if you sign up and you don't like it, you're like, you're like saying, man, this, this guy car sucks. <laughs> then I will give you $7 back in Bitcoin. So that way you can cancel and you tested it out for a month. And you're like, man, car, you're really terrible at this. I'm going to give you my $7 back. And I'll, I'll do that. I've only had to do that one time, one time, just once. That's it. I keep my word. I'm an honest man. And then finally, one last thing. 
if you if you don't have money and you said, you know what, I already gave this guy a five star review. Thank you so much. You're the best. Right. And you want to still show support? Well, head over to thrillerx.com. That's right. We removed our news website that we had at thrillercrypto.com, and now it's forwarding to thrillerx.com. So I'm putting my kind of blurbs there every day uh, on what's going on in the space. Of course, you can get access to our Thriller Crypto Premium show from there too as well. Uh, we have our website. All our episodes are there. Pretty much everything's there at thrillerx.com. It's our home on the internet. So if you want to check out even more of what I got going on during the week, head over to thrillerx.com. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. And then if you're even more adventurous and you're like, man, this podcast newsletter sounds awesome. Well, you can sign up for free. We give away one free premium podcast show a month. Uh, lately, we've been doing like uh, Bitcoin in February, Bitcoin in January shows. We'll probably do a Bitcoin in March. Kind of gives you a rundown of what's going to happen uh, in February when it comes to Bitcoin. I'd like to say I'm bad. I'm batting like a 300 right now. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> if so, if you don't believe me, head over to thrillercrypto.substack.com or thrillerx.com. Sign up for the free newsletter. You'll get one premium show a month. Yeah. Yeah. Doing everything I possibly can to make sure you guys are all caught up in crypto and Bitcoin and the industry. And we're going to be at South by this year. Yes, 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 sir. That we are. We got our press pass. We're covering everything blockchain, uh, DLT. And a little bird told me that uh, Jack Dorsey is supposed to be there from Square and Twitter. That's going to be cool. Maybe I'll get a, a selfie with him like I did with the Winklevoss twins last year. But with, before we do that, we got to roll the disclaimer. Remember, Thriller's podcast does not give financial advice. He cannot tell the future, even if he thinks he can. He is just some dude trying to save the world one Satoshi at a time. Yeah, it's going to be a busy March. <laughs> so if we miss a week or two uh, here, um, sorry, <laughs> we did our best. Uh, what am I going to say? Oh, we're talking about Bitcoin and coin talk today. And you're probably left, you know, kind of your head's on a swivel, right? You're probably like, geez, car, this has been a tough month for me. I just don't know what's going on. Well, I, you know, I, I get it. If you're trying to trade this market right now, you're getting you're getting you're getting screwed, <laughs> especially if you don't know where it's going. But I'm here to save you because something's a brewing. There's nothing really out there that shows why it should have sold off. Because we're going down, we're going up, we're going down, <laughs> and then we're going back up. And you're kind of left wondering, this is crazy. It's a thriller, baby. <laughs> you got to fasten those seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. That's right. Especially going into March. You know, you have most people out there telling you, hey, we're going back down to 6K, man. And uh, they just don't understand the fundamentals of a bull run. Let me tell you. Driving up here at all. How did it get here? It was already here. I'm not saying I know everything. To be honest with you, like, I'm not saying that. I've never once said that. And there's a lot of people out there who are claiming that they do know everything. I don't think I know everything. I just think I look at everything, <laughs> including the people that are wrong. And uh, I listen to everything, right? And then I make my own decision. That's what a good, you know, 
person should do. I will tell you, though, for a fact, I am the only person in this space that doesn't have uh, an incentive outside of, you know, seeing the crypto space go go higher. Uh, that's my only incentive, right? I mean, that's what I want. See Bitcoin, Ethereum, see everything go up, right? That's my really only thing that I want to see happen. But you have some other people that have obligations to conferences, that have obligations to companies that are in the space, that have obligations to the projects that they're attached to, that have obligations to their investors that they're managing, uh, that have obligations to a lot of outside interests, you know, looking to make a quick buck in the space. And in that sense, I would say I'm probably the only honest person. <laughs> well, not the only honest person. There's probably a few of us out there. Uh, they're very hard to find, but I'm definitely the only person that has no really incentive to lead you astray other than making sure that uh, I give you the, the facts for everything. And I think it's hard to tell because I, I was there in the beginning, in the beginning of this, of this uh, whole run, right? In 2016, 2017. And I remember believing anybody. Uh, it wasn't until I really like looked at the space and saw for what it was. That it kind of just came clear to me that there's really only a few people that are, you know, honest when it comes to this information. And sometimes people, you know, are honest. And they're just telling you wrong information. They're just not looking at everything. Okay. We're talking Bitcoin. And we're talking where it's headed. Now, it's not surprising that we're back below 10K again. Hit it, Jorge. One more Yeah, thanks, Jorge. Appreciate that. You know, you're turning out to be a really good intern. Might hire you. We'll definitely hire you at some point. <laughs> Maybe when Bitcoin goes back up. Okay, so we're down at the 98.68 right now, right? 98.68. But when do we get above 10K? That's what you're probably asking, Carl. When are we getting above 10K? When does mainstream news cover this? Well, like I said, and like I've been saying, um, this is fairly easy to call. It's it's really not that hard. I mean, if you look at prior bull runs that we've kind of been in this kind of, uh, I like to call it more of a cycle, right? I mean, you have your, your bear and your bull cycle. We're in the second part of this, um, of this, well, actually I would even, well, I guess you could. Well, no, technically you can't. Yeah, technically you can't. We're, we're, we're like on the, on the peak of this, uh, second, the second part of this bull cycle. And this is what a lot of people aren't telling you. Um, when it comes to this, when we finally hit the bottom of a bear cycle, that's when we call the start of this next bull cycle. Make it very simple for y'all, right? So if our bottom was in what was that? 2018 is pretty, man, 2018 was hard times. 2018, when we hit 2,800, remember that? And everybody was telling you it was going to go down to 1,200. They were idiots. And we were the only people telling you that it wasn't going to go down to buy now. Well, sure enough, that was the bottom. I think we even called it at that point that that was the bottom. And then, of course, we know what happened last year with the whole May bulls run and April bulls run. And that was awesome. Well, we're we're heading on this thing, on this kind of trajectory that I am calling um, the last the last I would say the last gasp before we get into this a big spike. And before we get into how high this spike is going to go, because I know that's going to be your next question. We need to talk about where we're at right now. And we're in this space right now where 
we're going to go sideways. And that's okay. Uh, if you were if you're listening to our premium shows that we have on our through the crypto subscription, you would know. You know, I was saying, even told you a couple of weeks ago that hey, we're we're going to go down to 95, 94, 9300. We're going to retest those. If we fall below 93, we're going to retest 86. These are very easy. These are very easy things to call. You, all you have to look at just these resistant levels. I mean, it's not that hard. It really isn't. And um, at that point, if we fall below, you know, 9,300, we'll go down to 86. I don't foresee us falling below 86, but I mean, I would love to see it. <laughs> I would love to buy Bitcoin at that price again, but it's not going to happen. But if we do, you know, of course, there will be 7,800. That's another major resistance level. So you have all these resistance levels. We have to fall through each one. We retest multiple ones over and over again. Usually about three or four times, we'll fall back down. This is exactly what happened with 10K. We can't solidify 10K because we'd never solidified 10K in the history of Bitcoin. It's never been solidified. This is why we have so much trouble breaking through 10K and then falling back down through it. People are, are, are thinking, well, well, you know, it's Bitcoin's only worth 10K. It's only ever going to be worth 10K. You have some people saying that. Then you have some people saying, oh, it's going to go even further down. You have all these people that are incentivized to um, make you dump your Bitcoin for a variety of reasons, you know. But what I'm here to tell you right now is we're going to go sideways. We're going to go sideways for a little bit. But you watch it. Come March 11th, come March 12th, come March 13th, come March 20th at the latest, you're going to see Bitcoin significantly rise. And people are going to be astounded when it rises here in March, in early March. People are going to be astounded and be like, didn't see this coming. No one saw this coming. And I'm going to be like, bro, <laughs> it's right there in front of you. What what's a bull cycle are you looking at? It, it's literally right there in front of you. And then we're going to have this major spike right before the happening. And then it's going to fall. It's going to fall drastically, you know, either. And this is going to be hard to predict. But either before or after the happening, I just know once it hits its final peak before the happening, you'll want to make sure to move over to a stable coin or to sell or, or do something in, entirely different than hold Bitcoin, because it's probably going to fall back down to 7800 or even, you know, let's hope let's hope it's just like 8600 or something like that. It's going to fall back down. Because at that point, it, people are going to be like, man, I, sh I should have sold off. I should have I should have known this was going to hit a peak and it's going to fall down. Tons of people will be scared at that point. Tons of people will be scared because they'll be like, no, what happened to the major bull run we're going to have? No. When that happens, that's when we start the second part of this bull cycle. And then by the end of the year, we'll be above 10K again and we'll solidify 10K. Finally, we'll never have to go and retest 10K again, ever ever think about that think about that this is what people aren't telling you people aren't telling you this because uh i don't know why i mean i i think they just don't know the information maybe they do they're just you know unaware of it but would we finally do break through you know 10k one more time after we peak back up and i'd be very shocked to see it peak up and then um not go back down i'd be very shocked to see that where it just keeps running i'd be very shocked but if you know Bitcoin, like a lot of us do, myself included, you know it. Whatever goes, whenever it goes up in elevator chunks like that, it will fall back down, and it'll go up to like 14k, right? And it'll fall back down, even if it goes to 17k, or we get close to 20k, or even if it goes to 20k here before the happening, and we fall back down, we're gonna fall back down and retest 10k one more time. And once we break through 10k, when we finally break through that later in the year, you're gonna see the see the start of the next major bull run and that's going to leave us with 
2020, the end of 2020 to all pretty much all of 2021 looking and racing to the top of Bitcoin. And people are going to be wondering like, gosh, man, how did I not see this coming? People are going to be like, man, should I get into Bitcoin? Should I get into everything else? Should I get into alts? At that point, and this is what I've been telling a lot of people that listen to the to the premium show, is if you're somebody if you're somebody like me who likes to play alts but also likes to play the Bitcoin market, you're going to buy, you're going to wait to buy alts until after the happening. Because at that point, they're going to be at the lowest they'll ever be. Um, and you want to make sure you buy them at the bottom barrel price before it starts this major bull run. That way, you're only holding for like, what, a year, year and a half till we reach that type, the top of the bull cycle. At that point, you're going to be able to sell off and you'll have made the most amount of gains. This way, you're not holding anything prior, you know, any alts prior to the halving other than Bitcoin. It's it's the cleanest way to do it, in my opinion. This is what I've been recommending to all of y'all who listen to the through the crypto subscription show. Um, and yeah, it's it's really that simple. It's it's not any harder than that. And I think there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And there's a lot of people that are incentivized to tell you the wrong thing. And like I said, I'm only incentivized to tell you the right thing and the honest thing, because I don't have any incentive other than to make sure that you are happy with your with the show and you like listening to it and you want to listen to more of it uh i don't retain listenership by uh, giving bad information out you gotta think about that you know i don't have ads there's there's no really no reason to uh, give you bad information other than you know i'm not trying to show you crypto.com coin <laughs> but you get what i'm saying but uh yeah and that's and that's kind of where and that's kind of where i see everything going so really that easy i think we're gonna get in through march We'll probably be low here in a, for, for a little while. We're going to break above 10K, right? And then once we break above 10K, it's just going to run in March and April. And you're going to see probably another April bulls run. And it's just going to run and people aren't going to know when to sell. But I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, you want to make sure you sell at the top because it's going to fall drastically. We'll probably fall below 10K again after the happening or even right before the happening. Just kind of depends when these big whales want to dump on us. And then at that point, um, starts the next major bull cycle the second part of it and that's when you want to get back into alts that's when you want to you know get into start accumulating bitcoin every day uh and then that's when we start going into this next major top and then we'll dive into that more in in june and july and and in august that's when we'll we'll have a little time there to to talk about all this even more and what what altcoins look like the best ones uh but if you want any more information on this Head over to thrillerx.com. I put all my daily musings there. And uh, if you want to get even more in-depth and really get un- to get to understanding like where this is all going, then sign up for our newsletter. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. Um, but if you want to try it out for a month, you can. I mean, I think I give up pretty good information. You tell me. Okay. With that, let's get into our main topic. Today, we're talking The Money Hackers with Daniel P. Simon. Let's do it.
ladies and gentlemen, today we are talking the money hackers in today's main topic with Daniel P. Simon. Hey, Daniel, welcome on to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I want to talk about your book, but before we, before we dive into that, before, before we dive into that, because that's a really catchy title. I, I love the title. Um, nice. Great, great that HarperCollins is releasing it. Uh, okay, so before we dive into that, they didn't like my first. They didn't like my first title. <laughs> what, what was your? They did uh, the Fin Surgeons, like oh wow, Fin Surgeons. <laughs> but they tested it, and it uh, and it repeatedly tested worse than none of the above. So we wow, change it. Yeah, and that actually sounds like a really cool television show. Fin Surgeons, doesn't it? Yeah. it was like a kind of a superhero thing. Yeah, I like it. Okay, tell us a little bit about your background. Tell us uh, how you came up and your uh, expertise behind the money hackers. Um, sure thing. So uh, rather unconventional background. Um, as you can tell from my thick Bronx accent, I'm not from the U.S. originally. Um, I was born in the U.K., um, and I, uh, but I am an American now, uh, like John Oliver. I came here about 20 years ago, and I, <laughs> I became a citizen about halfway, halfway through. Um, and I've, I've now spent more time in the United States than anywhere else. So the U.S. is home. I was originally a, like, a writer, I guess, is what I would have been, a writer and um, like a, a, an English and French literature kind of guy. And I, I was going to be in academia. And somehow I fell into um, the world of finance. And I came at it through uh, reputation management and speech writing. And I ended up writing for all these incredible people some of whom are either in the book or like feature on the front of the book. People like Peter Crower, who's the chairman of Bloomberg. Um, I've done some work with Blythe Masters, who was the first CEO of Digital Asset. Um, Elizabeth Rutledge, the CMO of American Express. And um, I just got to kind of hang out with all these incredible financial people. I started a financial PR agency that became pretty successful. Um, and, you know, before I knew it, I, I was in the world as, as deep in the world of finance. So, um, you know, this is where I've spent the best part of my career, you know, working with banks and asset managers and technology companies. And back when I started working for, for fintech companies, fintech wasn't cool like it is today. It was literally people building technology platforms for banks. Um, uh, but I always had this really nerdy side to me and found that stuff really interesting. So that's kind of how I, I fell into it. It's absolutely not what I would have imagined myself doing. But honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't picture myself doing anything else right now. That's cool. And, and what, what got you, or I guess, what was the, the major decision in writing the book? Um, well, it was that or, you know, I had this idea about a, a romance novel about a billionaire who was kind of a fetishist, but Fifty Shades of Grey kind of came out first. So I was like, looks like I'm going to have to write a book about fintech. Uh, no, I, I guess I've always, you know, I've had a journalistic element to me. I wrote for Forbes for a lot of to uh, for many years. Um, and I um, wrote a lot of articles about fintech. I had clients who were in fintech. I had clients who were in banking. Um, and for me, 2008 was a really interesting year. I was working on Wall Street and there was this little thing called the financial crisis. And at the same time, all around me, there was this crazy explosion of technology. Um, uh, you know, whether it was the iPhone or Facebook hitting a billion users or the app store launching or, you know, this incredible stuff that was happening 
Um, and I was like right in like the eye of the storm. And I, and I got this sort of front row seat into how all of that technology kind of radically changed finance. And I guess, like I said at the top, because I was working in fintech, and that used to be like the number one conversation stopper. Like you'd be at a party and people would be like, what do you do? And you'd be like, I work in fintech. And then they'd just walk away from you. <laughs> and now, you know, I was, you know, a couple of years ago, I was at parties and stuff and people would be like, that's so cool. Can you set up my Venmo account? Um, or like, should I buy this Bitcoin stuff? You know, it felt like, um, felt like there was a complete 180 on, on what I was interested in. Uh, and it occurred to me that really since 2008, uh, with the financial crisis and then also this like maelstrom of technology, the world had just completely changed. And uh, I was getting, I was fortunate enough to be working with some of those people who were making that change, who were all really interesting people in and of themselves. And I just thought, wow, there's a story here. And um, did you ever watch the movie um, The Big Short? Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, and, it, and it was like, you know, it, what, you know, Lewis did such an interesting job there because he, he got everyone to understand about uh, mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> but he did it, obviously, in a really approachable way and through these fascinating individuals. Um, and I just thought, you know, that, that we could do the same, whether it was Bitcoin or blockchain or lending or payments or remittances. Like, there were just as interesting people behind the technology that was transforming all of those areas. And, uh, uh, and, and, I, and, and, and I happened to know some of them or happened to know how to get hold of some of them. And basically, I you know, pitched the idea to someone who hooked me up with a, a book agent who then, who then pitched the idea to a few publishers and ended up talking to HarperCollins, which is obviously you know, a fantastic publishing house. And they really liked the idea. Um, how do we explain this, this fintech stuff, but through the lens of some individuals who brought it to life and who in and of themselves are really interesting. Yeah. So it looks like, um, you got a hold of some really interesting people for the book. I mean, and, and I'm pretty sure they gave you some incredible stories that either made it in the book or didn't make it in the book. Um, who, who are some of the, who are some of the people that you got to sit down and talk with about, uh, in the money hackers? Oh man, tons, loads of really fascinating people. Um, you know, one that you guys I'm sure will have covered because of the title of your podcast, right? Is Charlie Schramm. Right. Um, I, did, you, have you, did you ever have him on the podcast or? No, I, I've talked to him. I've talked to him personally uh, outside of the podcast though, but no, never had him on. He's an interesting guy. Fascinating guy, right? And, and right. the first interview with him, like a week after he got out of prison. Um, and, you know, obviously his story creating Bit Instant was, was fascinating. He's just a larger than life character. Mm -hmm. In many ways, like his bravado kind of encapsulated everything that people think about when they think about sort of Bitcoin bros, I guess. Uh, right. Uh, but also, I think there was a there was a really interesting story there about going up against the big guys, right? Because he he contends that you know the money transfer groups, the Western unions, and the these folks kind of conspired to to shut him down. And in the book, there's lots of that theme of kind of 
declaring your, int your intent of like, disrupting a market and then um, getting pushback from the incumbents is, is a pretty resonant theme. You see it in chapter after chapter. Um, and and, and he's he sort of ground zero for that. Um, so I think he's, a, he's just like a fascinating individual. Um, but there are some other people you probably don't know as well. One is this guy, Ishmael Ahmed. Uh, Ishmael Ahmed created uh, a company that's the, one of the largest technology companies in the UK now. It's called World Remit. So if you know uh, MoneyGram and Western Union, right. where you can send money home if you're working abroad, right? That's primarily, that's, that's primarily the use case. It's, it's a market called remittances, and it's a multi-multi-billion dollar market. Uh, and in some cases, in some parts of the world, remittances comprise serious chunks of the GDP. Right? So there are some states in India, like Kerala, where, uh, where, where remittances are, are, are like double digit. The, the GDP of the entire state is, is money getting sent home from workers who've chosen to go to the Middle East and work in service industry jobs and send money home. Right? So um, it's, a, it's a huge space. And this guy, Ishmael Ahmed, um, isn't just your regular, uh, you know, CEO, technology CEO founder. He was born in Somalia, and he grew up right in the middle of this Somali civil war. Um, and he kind of smuggled himself out of Hargeisa in Somalia, um, hiding in the bed of a truck. It's the only thing that kind of saved his life. Wow. Basically, like backpacks his way to London. He had a a scholarship um, at uh, at the University of London, but he had no way of getting there. So he he uh, he's he's waiting in Addis Ababa, and he gets money sent by his brother, uh, and that was his first experience with remittances. Like it's time time consuming and it's expensive, but he gets this money and he finally goes to. University it took about six to twelve months for the family all to realize that they'd actually all survived. They all thought that, that most of them thought that they were dead, uh, and they wow. were all kind of reconnected. Um, he 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 goes to university. He works a separate job so he can send money back home. So every day, every weekend, he traipses off to the Western Union, um, uh, uh, you know, kiosk which is a long way and he's got to spend a huge amount of money and he's like, this is ridiculous. This remittance thing is, is it's a rip. Um, so this is like eighties, nineties. He, he, he chooses to focus his economics degree on remittances. He, he rises to become the head of remittances for the UN. Um, uh, and he uncovers this uh, scandal inside the UN. There's actually some sort of like, there's, a, there's, there's criminal activity going on, uh, money laundering activity inside the UN, and he, he, he threatens to blow the whistle on it. And they, oh. if, you, if you expose this, um, we're going to blackball you. You'll never work in this industry again. He follows his instincts. He, he, he exposes this, this criminal activity. He gets completely blackballed. Um, he, he's unable to work. He sues the UN and wins. And then with that money, he starts... Um, World Remit, which then goes on to be uh, one of the most successful technology companies in the UK and is, is using good technology to essentially cut the cost of 
um, remittances, that is money sent, sent home. So, you know, he, his life story is like, I say it's always a bit like pursuit of happiness meets Hotel Rwanda, you know? Yeah, it sounds like it. Gosh, what a story. Fascinating. You're a fascinating guy and, and, a, and a, an absolutely humble guy, lovely guy to work with and doing God's work. I mean, dramatically cutting the cost of, of remittances, which, which is, you know, so important, that money that's going back to communities and families. And, and so not to make it too much of a plug, but the book is full of stories like that. So, yeah, that's why I kind of want to get into. So, so the money hackers book, like as far as the kind of the, the, I guess the structure of it all is, is it, is it more of a like short story by short story, short story, or, or like, what, what is it like a narrative story? Like what, what are we, what, what does it look like? Or what does it feel like? It's a good question. So, I, originally, the concept was we'd pick, we'd pick 10 individuals to do just those kind of short stories, and each individual would kind of represent a part of the, the bank that was picking apart or, or kind of reimagined with technology, right? So lending, payments, peer -peer, like Venmo, um, remittances, like I just talked about, savings, investments. Um, what happened is we very quickly realized that there's like way more than 10 individuals. And, you know, if you're right. in an area like lending, you know, you, you might have someone like Renaud Laplanche, who's in the book, who's the CEO of Lending Club, who arguably kind of invents the concept of peer-to-peer -peer lending. But then you've got someone like Catherine Petralia, who, who does the same for like small business lending. And, and small business lending is, is probably more important than just regular lending. So, Quickly, the idea that, that you know, we were going to get one person per chapter kind of got thrown away, and we ended up having, you know, several people per chapter. Another example is like Ken Lin, who created Credit Karma, right? So this idea about consumers having a better understanding of their credit score. Again, that's all part of the lending picture. So you kind of need all of these individuals to kind of get a better, a better sense. So, so the way to think about it is each chapter is really focusing on um, one of those areas. Like how is it now that we can just send money to each other where it used to be a check 15 years ago, right? How is it that I can get a loan from my neighbor? What is this cryptocurrency stuff? Um, uh, and, and then within each of those chapters, we focus on at least two or three in some cases, four or five individuals who, um, you know, are, are part of that story. And, and I write in the author's note about what, what we based the decision to, to focus on these people on. In some cases, it was availability. Like, could we get someone on the phone? I, I wasn't looking for necessarily the first person to invent something not least because if you look at like bitcoin no one knows who satashi nakamoto is so i could you know it's like okay. phone and call him um but i did want i wanted people with kind of interesting life stories like ishmael and i and i kind of wanted people who didn't look like your average banker and, and most of them don't um which is great but um you know as you can imagine it wouldn't like you know guy who goes to Harvard Business School and works at a bank, invents banking technology product is not a very exciting. <laughs> right.
so we, we basically found like a ton of people who are just just really fascinating individuals. Often they, you know, they're doing this on their like second or third go round. I would say that was that's that's partly that's one of the consistent themes, which is really a story about entrepreneurship. Which is like entrepreneurs, I think, you know, they're passionate about what they do, but often they like solve one problem and then move on to something completely different. So like Renault Laplanche had a technology company that was doing something in search. And then, and, and before that, he was a lawyer and a consultant. And then he yeah. uh, peer-to-peer lending. Adam Dell had been working on OpenTable. He was one of the first uh, institutional investors in OpenTable. Uh, and then went on to do something in higher education and then turned his hands to, um, you know, PFM, uh, uh, personal financial management technology. Um, obviously, uh, Blythe Masters had been working at J.P. Morgan for most of her career and was kind of from very institutional background before she turned her hand to crypto. She didn't really understand Bitcoin or blockchain until it was explained to her. And then when it was, she was like, this is what I'm going to make the rest of my career about. So a lot of these folks had some fascinating kind of backstories. Steve Street, who was the founder of Green Dot, he uh, was in the music industry. He actually coined the term soft rock and came up with the whole category of soft rock before being the number one bank for the underbanked. So like a lot of these guys, you know, when you just started having a conversation with them, their backstories are just absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it, it's interesting, like being in this space for so long, I, a lot of people I've had a chance to talk to and yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. You, you find out their backgrounds and most, mostly every single person I ha- I've had a chance to talk to is some form of a musician I've noticed and a lot of creative types believe it or not it's kind of weird how that um how they have some sort of like a background in the arts of some sort uh it's probably their just creative mind that's just unsettled and able to jump to different things and understand it uh from a very like you know base level all the way uh to and and then actually designing it and creating it into the real world it's pretty fascinating how that that's completely sensible right so like Bobby Kennedy said, some people look at the world the way it is and ask why. You know, I look at the way the world yeah. could be and I ask why not, <laughs> which is really just a variant of that old expression from Steve Jobs, which is your customers don't know what you want until you show it to them. And, and Henry Ford said a similar thing, which is if, if I'd asked my customers, you know, what they wanted, they'd have told me a faster horse. All of, all of that is basically saying if you're in something, then you think about it incrementally, right? So right. In, the banks have always had technologists. Like the banking industry was the second largest purchaser of technology after aerospace and defense. Yeah. So um, the inside banks like JP Morgan, there are tens of thousands of technologists. The question is, why didn't they invent Venmo? Right? Why didn't they invent right. cryptocurrency or blockchain? Why didn't they invent um, peer-to-peer lending? Why didn't they invent robo-advising? And the answer is because you know, if you do something for most of your life, you tend to think incrementally, right? You tend to think of ways to improve the paradigm. If you've never done it, like if you said like you were from musician or you were, you think you, you, have, you have no frame of reference. And so you think from a, from a blank slate and, and you completely reinvent the paradigm. And that, that's the case if you look at, you know, the iPhone, for example, like Steve Jobs 
wasn't in the telecommunications industry, right? So he didn't, you know, the, you, you know, when the iPhone came along, the question was, what the hell is Nokia and Black all these people <laughs> doing for so long? You know, what the hell? I've got this brick phone. And, uh, you know, and, and the answer is, you know, when you look at something you, you, you want to improve and you look at it for it too long, you tend to just look for ways to tweak it and improve it. If you don't, if, you, if, you, if you've never had a frame of reference, you have this opportunity, this marvelous opportunity to reinvent things completely from scratch. And that's how you end up with, you know, man-powered flight and the motor car and the iPhone. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a good example of that is, is peer-to-peer lending with like Renault Laponge. So like he's a lawyer, a consultant, he goes on, he, he makes some money build, building this technology company in search. He, um, and then he gets, a, he gets like a, a, a bank statement. And he like looks at it and he's like, I lend to these guys. You know, I, I give money to these guys. They give me, you know, 1% interest. Um, you know, at this point, the 2007 financial crisis, 2008, there's no, there's, you know, it's a zero interest environment. They, 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 they give me 1% and they lend out at whatever, 7%, 8%. And, uh, you know, he was asking like, where does the, where did the, what's the, where does that margin go? Like, where's those percent? And the answer is like infrastructure, like banks and branches and brick and mortar places and human tellers. And he just, he just said, well, what if we didn't have those? You know, what if you took that whole chunk right out of the middle and you just, you, you just borrowed and, and lent money? And that's how peer-to-peer lending came about. It's interesting. Um, I notice... I noticed... You need to have a different background. Sorry, what were you going to yeah. say? I was going to say, I, I noticed that you also touched on Bitcoin and Ethereum in the book as well, too. Um, what kind of what kind of insights did you get uh, when you were when you were kind of getting to those chapters? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to some really fascinating individuals. So I spoke to Joe Lubin, spoke to um, Michael Casey. Michael Casey took me to took me to crypto school um, uh, and taught me all about smart contracts. Um, I mean, I think there were a few things. It's, it's going to be hard for me to come on a podcast called Through the Crypto and then really dazzle you with my insights, given that. No, no, I, I think I think you could tell us. One tenth of, of what it was I, that we covered in the book. I, I think you could tell us. I think you could tell us something that you probably heard that you hadn't heard before, you know, being talked about in the space. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's whether you've heard it before. That's the question. Um, oh. But I think, you know, one of the things that's really fascinating to me, right, is is if you think about the birth of crypto, right, it's not an accident that it's 2008, that the, that the Nakamoto white paper is, is published, right? Um, and even inside that white paper, there's a reference to the financial crisis, right? So you've got this kind of cypherpunk background to it. There's, so what, what's fascinating to me at the, the heart of blockchain, distributed ledger technology, crypto generally is this um, anti-establishment decentralized kind of ethic or ethos and yet some of the biggest adopters truly the biggest adopters and the reason the bitcoin is where it is today have been 
the very people who are threatened by disintermediation, right? So exchanges, right? The first client for digital asset was the Australian Stock Exchange, the DTCC working with R3, um, uh, you know, SWIFT in payment space, uh, banks like JP Morgan, who initially came out was like, this is nonsense. And then, um, and then come out with JPM coin, right? So do you think that's spurred on by Facebook or do you think that's spurred on just by, they feel, you know, by Libra, you so, yeah. Do you think it's spurred on by that? Or do you think it's spurred on by, you know, this technology that they're just feeling breathing down their neck? Like, what do you think that is? I don't think it's, I think Libra did interest. I think a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, like, like, you know, Australian stock exchange, looking at crypto, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, um, people like JP Morgan building trading desks for crypto, that stuff came before Libra. Um, I think Libra has spurred on a couple of big things. And I think those two things are, on the one hand, there's a raft of regulation. I'm sure you guys are covering it that's going yeah. to Congress this year, right? Cryptocurrency regulation, really basic stuff, like how do we differentiate between crypto assets, right? What's cryptocurrency? Mm-hmm. What's a cryptocurrency? And who regulates what, right? SEC does this. CFTC does this. This Department right. of the Financial Treasury, which is the financial effectively financial crimes unit which is part of the treasury department you know yeah finra cryptocurrency there are right so so uh some really sort of like basic um uh cryptocurrency regulation that is that has Mm -hmm. come into play this year i think that unquestionably has been spurred on by uh, spurred on by libra because interesting yeah it's the one that I would say it's the one thing that Donald Trump and Maxine Waters can agree on is they don't like Facebook, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah. so I think a lot of a lot of regulators, when Zuckerberg was up and talking about their plans to launch a you know you know global cryptocurrency that would essentially disintermediate the central banks and um, the post-war consensus around kind of monetary strategy. Um, on a global basis, I think a lot of Congress people were like, "We don't even know who regulates cryptocurrency in this country." So, holy shit! So, I think it's <laughs> spurred on. The other thing yeah. I think it's undoubtedly spurred on is: um, Are you guys looking at uh, on your podcast CBDC at all? Yeah, yeah, we have. Um, they have uh, the ex-chairman actually rolling out his own company, <laughs> which is interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, Giancarlo, CFTC, ex-chairman, is rolling out his own company to build CBDCs. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if they'll use this technology or not, but I'm sure they have a good shot. <laughs> it's fascinating. So I think central bank digital currency is definitely a response. You, you, know, you saw Christine Lagarde come out and say the ECB was looking at it. You know, I'm speaking to a number of companies who are trying to create their own you know, maybe maybe not. It's not distributed, right? Because that's the last thing actually that a, that a central bank wants is a distributed ledger technology. They want right. something private control. Yeah, thing that uses the same you know cryptography and uses many of the same protocols, but is is different from a mm-hmm. you know DLT um, approach. 
And so that, I, I think that also is like, that is unquestionably a response to Libra and, and the Calibra initiative, unquestionably. Um, but we don't talk about it in the book because I, this, I had to put, I had to close the book. Actually, I write about that in my author's note. I'm like, as I'm writing this, I have no idea what will happen. I heard other authors say this is like, you know, you could just keep writing your book forever because there's always more things happening. As I was writing it, like Facebook was having its, you know, uh, was getting ripped a new one in Congress and Schwab had just slashed its fees to zero and TD was selling itself to Schwab. And it was like, oh, now stuff's getting interesting. I've got to send the book off to the publisher, you know. But you, there comes a point where you're just going to say, okay, it's done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close the book now. Uh, and the full title is The Money Hackers, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever. Um, it's a brilliant cover, by the way. I love this cover art. Uh, it's I'm glad you like amazing. It. That was HarperCollins' design. I always say that, that that cover looks a bit like a, um, like a migraine fields. Uh, I think it looks cool as hell. <laughs> I, kinda, I wish it. Something that pops on the shelf. Yeah, it, it'll definitely pop. It's definitely one of those, like, I wish I had a sticker that said the money hackers. That looks cool. Um, but what was I going to say is, uh, I, th- I think I think for the most part, I mean, is as long as you're covering, you know, the beginnings of this and how it kind of took form and where it all led to, I, I think uh, for that in itself is is definitely, you know, round of applause. Like, that's, Congratulations. Like that's a really good, um, that's a book that you could give somebody and say, Hey, you don't know anything about FinTech. You don't know where any of this stuff is going. Here's this book, read it. It's by Daniel P. Simon. And then you'll understand to what's going on in the space and where it's all headed. Right. So I think it's a very good, that's the plan. That's the plan, at least. Yeah, and I think it's a very good start because it gives you, it not only talks about Bitcoin, Ethereum, but it also talks about what's happening in the fintech space. Uh, and especially coming from you, that's somebody who's been in the space for so long, you're going to know the, the people that are, that are in play and, and how all that works and what their kind of um, you know, mission statements are and where they're headed and where their mindset's at. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's a good starting place for a lot of people. I think uh, it's very too easy to get into the space and jump in the middle of a conversation that most people are having on crypto Twitter or something. And it just becomes, you're completely clueless of what came before and what, <laughs> where everything's headed or what they're even talking about now. So yeah, I highly recommend everybody check out this book. It's, it's really fascinating. Oh, thanks for, thanks for selling it for me. No, absolutely. Um, I think, I think that's all I got. Do you have any other interesting tidbits you want to touch on? Conversations with Blith Masters as well. And there's a lot going on. The story, Charlie Schramm's story, of course. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I tried to make the Charlie story as, look, I think, you know, every one of these guys has something really interesting, right? Adam Bell, Michael Dell's brother, married to yeah. Pamela, actually. Um, he's, he's, he's a pretty fascinating individual in and of himself. Blythe is just incredible. Catherine Petrolia is, uh, is amazing. Margaret Keane from Synchrony Bank tells the story of like, going out to the West Coast in 2008 and realizing that everything they were doing in New York was wrong. <laughs> Char- Charlie went to prison. Uh, Ishmael um, was a renegade um, Somali refuge. Yeah, I want to see that movie. <laughs> Yeah, so, I think, you know, I think we've not, I mean, not every one of these people is, is quite so, you know, is, is quite so incredible, but, but even, even on the, on the more pedestrian level, people like John Stein 
who, who basically invents the category of, of robo-advisory and, and is, you know, decides to launch an investment platform in the middle of the worst recession in a hundred years. You know, every one of these people yeah. is slightly touched in a way. They're slightly crazy. Um, but, you know, it's like Steve Jobs says, only the crazy ones make history. So um, yeah. hopefully people will... Like I say in my author's note, they'll, they'll you know, come for the people and, and, and stay for the technology. So, uh, you know, I had, some, I had some great help writing, writing the book. I have, a, I have a, um, a co-writer by the name of Chris Dewan, who's, who's brilliant. Uh, and he's a, he's a, um, a screenwriter from Hollywood. And, uh, you know, he, he's the reason that the chapters don't open. Let me tell you about how payment gateways work. Um, right. <laughs> write a chapter that was like, this is the formula for Bitcoin. And his, <laughs> you know, Charlie Shrem took a deep sip of his pitch black coffee and looked out of the window. That's cool. So it's, it's written, hopefully, in a really approachable style. I hope people will, you know, even if they're complete neophytes and they're not amazingly drawn to either finance or technology, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it for the, for the people and their kind of weird and fascinating stories. And, and then hopefully along the way, they'll pick up a few things about, uh, about finance and technology. Yeah, absolutely. This stuff is uh, changing the world. And uh, it's supposed to be released here on April 14th, 2020. There is an audiobook version that's coming. So a lot of people that are listening right now to the podcast, you are all set there to get an audiobook. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, you can even use Audible too. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so Money Hackers, how a group of misfits took on Wall Street and changed finance forever. Thank you, Daniel P. Simon, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to see you on your panel at South by that should be fun. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to chat to you today. Yeah. Come along. Um, the, uh, uh, the panel is called tech versus finance, the battle for your money. And we've got, yeah. three, of the, uh, we've got three of the actual folks who are featured in the book, Blythe masters, Renault Laplanche and Adam Dell, uh, who are going to be talking about this. Yeah. I can't wait. Can't wait. Transform finance. Can't wait to cover that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, Daniel. Thanks so much for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get on to the end of the show.
right, ladies and gentlemen, another thriller crypto is Dunsies. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. Also, thank you to Daniel P. Simon for coming on the show. And make sure to check out his book. It gets released here in April. And you can find it at Audible, Amazon, all the book places. I highly recommend checking it out. If you guys want even more Thriller Crypto, head over to ThrillerX.com. That's right, ThrillerX.com. And uh, join us. We have all our episodes there. And you're feeling adventurous, find me on Twitter, by the coin, save the world. See you next time. This is the end of the show. Yeah.